Hello everybody, Julian Charles here again of themindrenewed.com. Today is the 16th of April 2013 and it's great to be talking to Mark Morano of climatedepot.com, which is a US-based news and information website serving as perhaps the clearinghouse on all matters to do with the climate, the environment and energy. So Mark Morano, thanks ever so much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you, Julian. Happy to be here. Now, I don't know if all my listeners are familiar with your website and your work, so I'm wondering, could you just give us a bit more information about what Climate Depot is and just introduce yourself to us a bit? Sure. I'm not a scientist, although I do play one on TV occasionally. I don't pretend to be a scientist. And seriously, I used to work for the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. I was a climate researcher and was the one who compiled the report of 400 dissenting scientists around the globe, later updated to more than 1,000. And from the U.S. Senate, uh, from the staff of the Environment Committee, I went and launched Climate Depot, which is a daily news and information site. Think of it as a daily newspaper on global warming with all the latest information, uh, but also has an editorial policy, which is generally skeptical uh, of the idea of a man-made catastrophe. So in, uh, I guess I would be considered one of the evil deniers out there. <laughs> in fact, I was named Climate Misinformer of the Year by the Global Warming Activists, and that was actually touted by none other than Al Gore on his website, the fact that I had won that negative award. But, of course, you know, this was from Global Warming Activists, so I took it as a positive award. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> how does your organization, sorry, how does your website relate to the organization CFACT? Because I believe it's a project, isn't it? Yeah, uh, CFACT's been around since 1986. It's basically like a free market, if you will, environmental group, a free market think tank. And they were interested in what I was doing in the Senate, and we had an idea to do the website to have much more freedom and control outside the bounds of the U.S. Senate. So I became a project of CFAC. So they're my parent company, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, but Climate Depot is essentially a, um, my baby, and it's a, uh, you know, it's a one-man show uh, working under CFAC. But it's a, um, a, you know, a website that tries to – I try to cover all perspectives. So if there's a new study out claiming it's the hottest in 4,000 years – I put that report up, and then I start putting up the reaction. And Climate Depot is the only place you're going to find where that study is now on the verge of retraction watch. You know, this was, you know, when the media touts new studies, like where now the earth is hottest in 4,000 years, there's a new study out, which they did, the New York Times and the Associated Press and European papers, I believe even the BBC. Uh, Then a few weeks later, we start getting all the scientists taking a look at this, and now the whole entire study is falling apart. It's one of the things we do at Climate Depot. We take a critical look, and we organize, if you will, you know, the uh, media coverage of an event, and I try to get reaction from scientists and get them to weigh in. So I get scientists who are somewhat skeptical of global warming to start weighing in on some of these claims, and so that's how you know, we can have a news impact as well as cover the news. Mm-hmm. It's a great source of information for sure. Now, the main reason that I wanted to speak to you at this particular time, because I've recently interviewed Dr. Eric Karlstrom, who is fully persuaded that this theory of anthropogenic global warming is a hoax. And I noticed that you had recently written a Climate Depot Roundup report on the 8th of April, in which you say, and this is how you actually title it, the great warmest retreat has officially begun. The mainstream media cannot maintain the official man-made global warming narrative any longer. And you point to a number of examples in the media where this tide seems to be turning. So can you give us an idea of the evidence that this is in fact turning? Well, first of all, let's talk about the science and then how the media now can no longer ignore this. 
If you remember years ago, we used to always hear about the polar bears. We don't hear about polar bears anymore. Why? Because new analysis, including by the U.S. government, are showing that polar bears are at or near historic highs. We used to say there were 25,000 polar bears up to. Now the new numbers are coming out in excess of 30,000 in the North Pole. The Inuit people in the, in the Arctic will say there's absolutely no problem. Polar bears are plentiful. And to the point now where polar bears, you know, no serious scientist is warning about polar bears anymore because they've sort of lost the narrative. Sea levels, multiple studies and data showing uh, either a stall recently in global sea level rise or a lack of acceleration. So the idea that sea level is accelerating and that Florida is going to be half underwater isn't panning out. Perhaps the biggest is global average temperature. And global average temperature, depending on the data set, is 10, 15, 20 years of no global warming. That has had the biggest impact on the media. There's quite simply hundreds of factors that make up our global temperature. The global warming activists have, have admitted this, the scientists who study it, everything from tilt to the Earth's axis to water vapor, methane, cloud feedbacks, volcanic dust, ocean cycles, the sun, atmospheric circulation. I mean, the list goes on and on of the primary temperature uh, chemistry makeup, if you will, and also the feedbacks, which can, and humans can both heat and cool the earth. We can cool the earth through coal burning uh, and creating a lot of sulfur dioxide, which can block out the sun, cause global dimming. One of the reasons they talked about the man-made coming ice age in the 1970s. We can also warm the earth through land use policies and even CO2 to the extent that it's a greenhouse gas. But what we're finding out and study after study is now showing this, is that the medieval warm period was as warmer, warmer. The Roman warming period was as warmer, warmer around the time of zero AD. And that we had a little ice ages that the Earth's climate fluctuates and we've had warmer periods in the past with lower CO2. And we've had warmer periods in the past with CO2 at 2,000 parts per million. We're only at uh, around 400 now. Uh, and temperatures were cooler than today. So the idea that CO2 is a control knob is no longer scientifically tenable. CO2 has an impact, but what we're finding out and why the media has gotten interested is natural variability is dwarfing any alleged effect of CO2. It is not the tail that wags the dog. And at Climate Depot, we're collecting all the peer-reviewed studies and published in prestigious journals that just chip away all the time at this. It's a death of a thousand cuts. But the dagger in this is the lack of global temperature rise. We now have the UN admitting that the average global temperature has stalled. We now have NASA's global warming activist scientist James Hansen admitting it. We have uh, Der Spiegel in Germany is admitting it. We have uh, The Economist magazine, which was a shocking you know, retreat recently. And we have even the Washington Post is getting involved in this. The UK Telegraph, Jeffrey Lean, the environmental editor. This is just shocking stuff. And now this week, Reuters News Service in America Climate scientists struggle to explain warming slowdown, quote, has exposed gaps in their understanding and defies the rise in greenhouse gas emissions, unquote. This is what Reuters is now reporting this week. Reuters is a major mainstream news publication. This stuff is unheard of just a few years ago. And the other shocker this week, by the way, Julian, mm -hmm. and this was reported by AP's Associated Press, another reporter who's an activist is Seth Bornstein, but he couldn't ignore the science. A federal U.S. government study showed that the drought was not due to man-made global warming. And this is the same media that reported last summer after the drought was hitting that this is what global warming looks like. Well, now we have a U.S. government study done by global warming believing scientists saying the drought was not caused by global warming. And the list goes on and on, by the way. You know, if you're looking at the extreme storms, which they're trying to shift the argument over because global temperatures aren't rising, there's no trend in 
floods up to 126 years in the peer-reviewed literature, new studies. There's no trend in drought. In fact, the U.S. droughts are declining, and the otherwise droughts are showing no trend over 60 years. Big tornadoes are down since the 1950s dramatically. Hurricanes, we're at a hurricane dearth despite Hurricane Sandy. Many hurricanes as bad or worse than Sandy uh, earlier in the 20th century. And the idea that Sandy represents a new normal is laughable when you consider we're at 30, 40-year historic lows in tropical cyclone activity. The U.S. has gone about seven or eight years without a major landfalling category three or larger hurricane making landfall. This is now going on. That's the, that seven or eight-year gap is the longest since 1900 that we've gone that long. So not only are the extreme storms not happening, which is what they're trying to shift, but they're not happening in spectacular fashion. And as we look at it, it's shocking to watch because they're now trying to pull every storm anywhere in the world as some kind of proof of their theory because global temperatures aren't supporting them. Mm. And this is a sea change right now. You have mainstream media and you have now politicians who are embarrassed to talk about global warming. And they're, so that's why they start talking about hurricanes as an example, because they don't want to talk about global warming. We now have a generation of school kids, 15 years and under, who never experienced global warming because the temperature didn't rise during their entire lifetime. And that's shocking. But uh, Michael Mann has responded, hasn't he, to this Economist article saying that uh, the claim was just supported by a single unpublished article by a group in Norway. Which claim is he talking about? This is about uh, temperatures expected to rise um, no more than about uh, two degrees centigrade as a, co- a consequence of a doubling in CO2. Well, that's a study. That's a study about the future. And that's interesting because they're revising that downward. But it's, it's a silly argument. And I'm not exactly sure what Michael Mann's referring to about one single study. But the bottom line is when you're talking about OL, they've scaled down their projections. First of all, the projections are laughable. We've had, we've had modeling experts and um, people like uh, Scott Armstrong from the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Economics, who, who studies forecasting, wrote the book on forecasting principles. He says these climate models that are used to project future temperature violate the basic principles of forecasting. It's something like 71 out of 87 principles of forecasting. And that this is just, you know, you're better off just picking random numbers than you are trying to come up with, uh, you know, these climate models. So the idea of predicting it, and I think that's what Michael Mann was focused on uh, in that quote you gave me, although I'd have to see the exact quote he's referring to. But what's significant is, is that all the major temperature data sets, and I'm talking about the land and the ocean combined, satellite temperature, NASA, the Hadley Center in UK, which keeps the temperature data for the uh, United Nations, they're all showing this global temperature stall. That is not in dispute. And some people will say, well, it depends on the year. You can show this, you can show a trend, and that's true. You can show a cooling trend over, you know, five or seven years. You can show warming trends. If you pick 18 years, you can pick. But the bottom line is it's it's all a big fancy way of saying something is amiss, and the media is now recognizing that. They're calling it a lull, a slowdown, a halt, a flatline. Whatever phrase you want to use, it's a massive scientific and PR problem for the global warming activists. Well, there seems to be an attempt in the climate science world to push this off into other possible explanations. I mean, you point to Kevin Trenbreth's statement in the Real Science blog where he says uh, global warming is continuing, but it's being manifested in somewhat different ways, pointing to the possibility that it could be trapped in the oceans to be released at some uh, later date. To my mind, that doesn't sound like a retreat from the position of the theory, but a kind of attempt to save the theory for finding in a kind of ad hoc explanation explanations to to keep it afloat. Do you feel that's what's going on there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Kevin Trenbeth, a a top UN scientist, is basically saying is, hey, 
you know, honest, global warming's here, but sorry, the, the oceans ate our global warming. That's what he's basically saying. The oceans have gobbled it up. Well, then we look at climatologists like Roger Pilkey Sr. Uh, and other scientists who study ocean heat content, and, they're, and even Dr. Roy Spencer, climatologist from Alabama, they are just ripping into this theory that the oceans are absorbing the heat and they're not finding the trends in the, in the sea level surface temperatures. And uh, this is just becoming more and more speculation. Kevin Trenbeth has also said every weather event is now influenced by global warming. This is essentially they're turning themselves into anti-science activists. When you claim without proof, and it's an assertion, that, hey, global warming is everywhere, it's a religious feeling. It's like saying God is everywhere and every action you do is guided by the hand of God. Well, you can't prove or disprove that. And so what they've done with global warming is they now say every storm is affected by global warming. Well, how can you prove that? Well, skeptics will look at this empirically and say, okay, we'll play your game. Let's take a look at all the low CO2 storms, and we start compiling the list of massive hurricanes, floods, tornadoes that all happened before the 1930s and 40s. It happened in the 19th century. And their theory that somehow the weather is unusual, that we have a new normal, that all weather is influenced by global warming, not only has it failed to convince, it becomes a laughing stock when you start actually looking at the hard data. And then this, of course, makes it into the peer-reviewed literature. And I have a whole report on extreme weather. They cannot make these claims. They make these claims, Michael Mann and Kevin Trembeth, but they make it to reporters who are sympathetic, and they'll never, and I'll repeat this again, they will never, ever debate a global warming scientist who's a skeptic because they would be torn apart. In fact, the one time they did agree to debate was in New York City. It was actually one of, the, one of the Hansen's colleagues from NASA named Gavin Schmidt and two other global warming activist scientists. They debated... Uh, Richard Lindsay of MIT, and your own Philip Stott of England, a U.K. scientist, and they had Michael Crichton, uh, actually, who was a medical doctor turned author. They had a three-on-three debate in New York City, and before they had the debate, they polled the audience of hundreds of New Yorkers what your, their views were on global warming. The overwhelming majority of the audience was believers in man-made climate fears. After a 90-minute debate where, the, where actually the global warming activists were questioned and challenged by the skeptics, and they weren't prepared for this because they never, ever, ever, let me repeat that, ever, ever challenged. The universities don't challenge them. The media doesn't challenge them. Their students don't challenge them because, you know, I mean, in any real way. And they don't ever enter in debates. After that debate, the audience of tough New York City global warming believers completely reversed themselves and voted that global warming was not a crisis. Immediately after that debate, the NASA scientist Gavin Schmidt announced that it wasn't worth it for global warming activists to debate skeptics anymore. And they pretty much held true to that. There have been a couple quick you know, three, four-minute TV debates with a couple scientists. And there have been a couple other forums, but mostly they involve environmental activists and maybe one or two scientists. But it's amazing to see that that's where they shy away. And so you're bringing up Kevin Trenbeth and Michael Mann. They'll make all kinds of assertions, but nothing they ever say is challenged at the moment. In fact, Michael Mann is laughable. And I use that word very scientifically. He'll still claim that Mount Kilimanjaro's receding ice and snow allegedly is due to man-made global warming, despite the fact that the Kenyan government has given statements, despite the fact there have been peer-reviewed studies showing it has to do with local deforestation issues and precipitation, despite the fact that now the snows have returned somewhat in recent years, they still cling to these old talking points. Why? Because they don't have to fix their game, if you will. They don't have to update their talking points because they're never challenged. They just throw stuff out to audiences where they have strict question policies, audiences where they would never allow a debate, 
And media interviews where most, almost 99% of the reporters would never ask a challenging question other than to say, oh, what about those skeptics or something? They will never challenge them on the spot. So what you have there is a giant echo chamber of very poorly articulated scientists who can't actually argue their way out or make the case. They just say a lot of implausible things to a fawning media at these conferences, and particularly the United Nations. They can say whatever they want. The UN itself is just embarrassing to watch. Some of the UN statements they've made, they've been caught claiming there's 10-year tipping points where we must act on global warming, and that was in 1989, the United Nations. That expired in 1999. And we have the spectacle of NASA's James Hansen in 2009 told one of your UK newspapers Obama had only four years left to save the planet. Well, guess what? NASA's lead global warming scientist failed because in January 2013, we're still here, we're still surviving, they now have their version of the Mayan calendar. You know, they have the Mayan doomsday calendar, except now it's the modern version where we have NASA scientists saying this stuff. It's, it's utter tripe and drivel. And I think the public gets it, but this is why they won't debate. They will not debate. In fact, Michael Mann agreed to a joint appearance with me on BBC, but there would be no direct interaction. This was on the radio back in uh, December. There was no direct interaction. The producers were terrified of allowing me to speak. I couldn't speak when he spoke. They had me on silent. After the live interview, they edited up my piece on BBC. I mean, it was just mm. an amazing thing to watch. And then that's their idea of a debate where, the, you know, you have the moderator on your side, you set strict rules, and you, uh, you, you actually, uh, you know, on the same radio program with a skeptic, but you don't actually interact. That was my, as close as Michael Mann ever came that I'm aware of to debating anyone in his life when it comes to man-made global warming. Yes, I understand that it's BBC policy now not to allow the uh, sceptics to have much of a voice. Um, when you, you speak about a retreat in the mainstream media, you point particularly to Geoffrey Lean's article in The Telegraph, Global Warming, Time to Rain Back on Doom and Gloom, question mark. And uh, although it does point to this new research that's coming forth, which may be looking at less than two degrees warming on a doubling of CO2, uh, it still does say that, I mean, I'm just quoting from it here, none of this justifies the frequent claim by climate sceptics that global warming has stopped and may now reverse. The researchers themselves are quick to emphasise that their results should not diminish attempts to combat climate change. So it looks as if, you know, this is not really that much of a retreat, even in that article. Oh, it's, it's a retreat. I never say, I'm, I'm very careful. We're not saying it's a reversal, but it's a retreat. Mm-hmm. Because he also says it's time to rain back gloom and doom. The temperature law, quote, raises the possibility that CO2 may be less potent than has been thought in heating the planet. The fact that they would make that statement is a massive retreat. They're acknowledging that there's hundreds of other factors, that CO2 may not be that all-powerful control knob. And that is what's significant about this. These, and this is the same with Reuters News Service. These are, they're looking at these, and they're now starting to question it because they're scratching their head. And, yeah, they can claim all sorts of things. Well, you know, it's still coming. That's the old idea that, yeah, the data isn't supporting us right now, but our predictions, we're, you know, we're, this is what we find a lot now with the global warming activists. When their predictions fail them, they have two options. They end up, one of them is they'll claim that the future is going to be that much stark. And they'll come out with a modeling study that says, well, you know, Antarctic sea ice may be at record expansion, but our new study shows that by 2050, the Antarctic is going to be, you know, half the sea ice at record lows. And so the media will jump and say, Antarctic sea ice doomed. The Antarctic sea ice is melting due to global warming. <laughs> and the thing is, it hasn't happened yet, Then they're just making a prediction. And that's a valid thing enough to do, but that's how they get away with it. So when reality fails them, they come up with a bunch of scary predictions. 
And, and that's, that is, I think, you know, what they're basically saying here is stay the course. Don't worry about the data right now. And then you actually have very serious issues. And there's, you know, there's been accusations of all kinds of temperature data tampering. I mentioned NASA's James Hansen is set to retire, uh, the global warming scientist. He has now gone back to the 1930s and cooled the past. And you can actually go back five or ten years and look at NASA's temperature data from the 1930s, and it, and it actually showed a flat line or cooling trend to current day. Well, now they've gone back and made adjustments to the past temperatures, and so they cooled the past, so now they're showing a warming trend. So suddenly we're warmer now. We're in a big warming trend, and the past wasn't this hot. That's shocking stuff because these aren't done in peer-reviewed journals. They're not done with open sourcing. They're just sort of things that are done behind the scenes, and you can freedom of information act request to find out why the past is cooling. And it's shocking stuff. And this is this has got a lot of people worried, because when you have someone like James Hansen, the NASA lead global warming scientist in the United States, endorsing a book calling for ridding the world of industrial civilization, for blowing up dams and raising cities and turning off our greenhouse gas machine, you got to start wondering, hey, and he's also been arrested three, four, five times against a Keystone pipeline, oil pipeline here in the United States. He gets in handcuffs and goes to jail. NASA's lead global warming scientist. You start to realize these aren't dispassionate scientists at the truth, that these are hardcore anti-development environmental activists who you wouldn't really, you know, you would, you would dismiss as a Greenpeace nut some of the things that James Hansen's done, let alone he's the keeper of NASA's temperature data. So this is what people need to realize. These are not they, these, you know, these are not uh, disinterested scientists seeking the truth. These are activists. People like Michael Mann, hardcore environmental activist. People like Michael Oppenheimer, another UN scientist, works for environmental groups, a hardcore environmental activist. So these are not, well, the scientists are looking at the data and they're convinced. We know from ClimateGate 1, ClimateGate 2, and ClimateGate 3, this three separate email releases, that these scientists, the upper echelon of the UN, colluded with each other. We have the actual specific examples and the full context of them saying we went to this conference and all these solar guys aren't sold on CO2 and then a new study comes out, we're not going to include that in our UN science documents. They threaten journal editors. They threaten the individual scientists. We know that after ClimateGate 1 broke in November 2009, UN scientists came out and said that you know, these top UN scientists involved should resign. And they said by saying these words, this was Edward Zerato, a UN scientist, he said, by saying these words, I know I may never be published in the peer-reviewed literature again. A UN scientist is announcing to the world that if you cross the leadership of the UN, they have the power to block your papers from being published. And people are looking at it and saying, well, all these, all these panels convened by governments with steep interest in the global warming narrative and staff who have major investments in, uh, in alternative energy all cleared the climate change scientists of, wrong, of wrongdoing. Well, they didn't clear them of colluding and of all the things that we actually plainly see, they tried to look at it from strict uh, illegal policy, and they also didn't ask the right questions. They also didn't include the skeptics, and most of those reports were complete shams, uh, just set up to, you know, you knew the result, like in the instance of um, Penn State University's on Michael Mann. They, people have analyzed what cleared Michael Mann at his university, and they said it would be hard to parody what Penn State University did. Uh, and Michael Mann is, of course, one of the biggest faces at Penn State, and he's their cash cow. And that's actually in their report clearing him. So it's an amazing thing to watch. When you start scratching the surface of man-made global warming narrative, you realize the consensus 
is a joke, frankly. It's, you know, it's, it's something that we should all have a hearty laugh. The governments around the world pick the scientists that go to the UN. They're not going to pick scientists who are skeptics. They're not going to pick disinterested scientists. They're going to pick scientists they can rely on that are going to help do their bidding and help work the politics of this because the scientists have to work with UN delegates, bureaucrats, and political leaders when they do these summary for policymakers. This is a political body masquerading as a science institution, the IPCC of the UN. And then you have all these science bodies, the National Academy of Science, the American Meteorological, all these groups that come out and endorse the UN view and people say, look, thousands of scientists support the UN. How can you deny this? Do you think it's all a big you know, conspiracy? And you find out only two dozen governing board members of these science groups vote on a statement that supports what the UN says without ever, without their rank and file scientists ever even being a aware of it, voting on it or without their input. And then it turns out that when they actually do surveys of the, the rank and file members of these groups, which endorse the UN climate view, we find out that up to 75% in the case of the American Meteorological Society rejects man-made global warming with a sizable percentage saying it was a hoax using the phrase hoax, actually, because one of their most prominent members said that. So this is where then you have the National Academy of Science take $6 million from the U.S. Congress, turn around and lobby for a climate bill. You have the head of it, Ralph Cicerone, going around lobbying for legislation and lobbying for policy. These are far from disinterested groups. And a key point to make, it doesn't mean all these scientists are involved in a hoax. It means if you go back to the 1970s, the conventional politically correct wisdom was that we had an overpopulation crisis. People like Paul Ehrlich, John Holdren were leading the way, writing books, doing studies, feeded by the scientific establishment. All their information was being taught to school kids. The media was eating it up. And now you fast forward 30, 40 years, and we find out the new population problem is underpopulation. Fred Pierce of New Scientist, Grist Magazine, they're all writing about how the overpopulation has imploded. All those predictions were not only wrong, but dead wrong. And there were skeptics back then, including the late Beatle John Lennon, who debated Dick Cavett on this very point in the 1970s. And John Lennon looks like a sage if you go back and watch it. And Dick Cavett, if you went back in time, people would have said, oh, look, John Lennon believes all these scientists are involved in a hoax. No, they're involved in very wrong and model-based speculative science, and they're ultimately proven wrong. And that's basically what skeptics are saying about man-made global warming today. This whole industry is well-financed, well organized and at the united nations ipcc which was formed in 1988 to study how co2 impacts the climate if it fails to find co2 having a serious impact on the climate it fails to have a reason to exist and therefore would have to disband so we know that every report that comes out of the u of the ipcc will never show that because then it would take itself out of existence and we know that the head of it regina pachari has repeatedly done what's called predictive science he predicts years in advance that the next report will be worse than we thought. And wait till you see it. It'll be so bad the world will have to act. I mean, these are almost verbatim quotes from him. This is not science. This is political activism masquerading as science. And anyone out there, any of your listeners who actually think, well, all these scientists agree and they can't be wrong and global warming is real, have to go out and study this for themselves. And please don't let your kids get taught this line of drivel. I mean, I'm imploring you, Julian, and your listeners, they've got to investigate this for themselves. Any cursory examination of who's behind this and how they've presented this and how these papers are done and how this narrative was crafted, you will realize you have been conned by the global warming activist establishment. 
But it's very, very persuasive, isn't it, when you're told on the media, for example, as we had back in January, that uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, you know, was calling for governments to spend this massive $14 trillion, as they say, on greening the global economy. I mean, most people listening to that will think, well, there must be absolute consensus and certain science behind that. If, you know, if that kind of money is being spent, there must be something behind that. Yeah, well, what's behind it, particularly when you're talking about the United Nations, is a political agenda. It's not science. Here's the thing. Regardless of the environmental scare, and we're talking about global cooling, we're talking about overpopulation, we're talking about species extinction, we're talking about sustainable development, we're talking about deforestation, they always have the same solution. And you can go back and you can plug and play, plug in a different environmental scare, but guess what? It's always the same solution. More centralized planning, more international government control, perhaps a global tax of some kind, in the case of global warming, a global CO2 tax, mm. management of countries, violation of sovereignty. You know, we have the German climate advisor, Hans Schulenhuber, calling for a CO2 budget for every man, woman, and child on the planet. And Westerners, like Europeans and Americans, are well over our CO2 budget, which means transfers of wealth. This is what the intellectual left has been trying to do for decades. And now they're just using the face of environmentalism and the current incarnation of that is global warming. If we went back 30 years or 40 years, it would have been overpopulation to manage human populations, to manage economies, to manage our culture. We have the Japanese government now calling for Japanese, the environmental ministers call for Japanese citizens to go to bed an hour earlier to lower their energy footprint to help fight global warming. We have in the UK, you guys have discussed carbon ration cards issued, but monitored by your employers that would monitor how much carbon, airline travel, etc., energy use you do. And if you go over, you're in violation and you pay a fine. If you're under, you, you get credits. These are levels of control that the left just can't get enough of, and they love that. That's why this, in, in a way, it's not even so much a left-right issue as it is a statist issue. This is the same individuals who've always called for managed economies, global and national economies. They're using environmentalism to achieve their ends, and they really don't care. That's why you have quotes like former U.S. Senator Timothy Wirth, who says, even if we're wrong on the science of global warming, we'll be doing the right thing by policy. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter that Kyoto would have had no detectable impact on temperature. It doesn't matter that cap-and-trade climate bill in the United States, not only would it not have impacted global temperature, it wouldn't even have impacted global CO2 level. It was still billed by President Obama as keeping our Earth four or five degrees cooler for our grandchildren. It was billed by our Senator Boxer of California here and the head of the Environment and Public Works Committee who oversaw the climate bill as being able to prevent floods and droughts and hurricanes. It was billed as a magic bill, a medieval witchcraft bill, if you will. They actually are claiming that acts of Congress and the United Nations can control the weather. We're now reaching back to medieval witchcraft, where people used to say, we never had weather like that till that witch moved in next door. <laughs> they actually believe the weather is unusual, and they actually believe they can vote in the halls of Congress or Parliament to change the weather. And this is where, and I believe it was Philip Stott who said this was the madness of our age. And I think that's where we are. I mean, for people, otherwise intelligent people, to actually believe that we can, by somehow rolling back CO2 to 350, you see a whole organization run by Bill McKibben, 350.org, we can go back to those low CO2 storms and low weather. Well, take a gander over at Climate Depot where we, we've been documenting this. Take a look at my extreme weather report and take a look at some of the floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, wild weather that we used to have when we had low CO2. And you'll find out 
And the, and the other studies have shown that the, the weather is, is worse during cooler periods than it is warmer periods. And they used to be called the medieval climate optimum. And the word optimum implied that the weather was optimum because it was warm. Life thrives in warmth. I don't know how we've turned these concepts on our head. Life dies in the cold. Look at our planet. The most biodiversity plant animal species is at the equator where it's the hottest. As you move from the equator, life and biodiversity lessens till you get to the both poles where it's the coldest. So the idea that we should fear warmth, first of all, which you know, is a question of whether it's even going to happen. We now have most of the Russian National Academy of Science coming out with studies predicting global cooling. We have U.S. scientists predicting global cooling, Australian scientists. There's a whole contingent now of scientists based on solar cycles, ocean cycles, and other factors, solar system factors, predicting up to a century or more of global cooling coming. And it all comes down to how much you want to bank on how powerful, all-powerful CO2 allegedly is. Is CO2, is your SUV controlling the Earth's thermostat? Is your SUV and your car and your airline travel, is that controlling, and your home thermostat, is that controlling you know, summer temperature, winter temperatures? And the other reason we know this is a con is we were told by David Viner of the UK, the scientist, that snow was a thing of the past. We were told by UN scientist Michael Oppenheimer back in the 1990s that he got his daughter a sled, but he didn't expect to use it much because snows essentially were disappearing. And then we have record snow. We have record northern hemisphere snow. We have record spring snows. We have blizzards. And now they claim, well, that's consistent with the theory, too. And Hans von Storch, the German scientist, said, you know that's a con, because if they were going to say that, you don't ever accept explanations after the fact like that. They are spinning. Al Gore is claiming the blizzard's consistent. We have the New York Times claiming the blizzard was an example of global warming a few years ago. And that's just nonsense. That's where you have scientists now like Roger Pilkey Jr. of the University of Colorado saying that this is essentially now like the interpretations of Nostradamus of the Mayan calendar, where no matter what happens, they can come up with some interpretation. And that's why I call it climate astrology. When you have, no matter the weather event, it's exactly the kind of weather we would have expected under global warming. They're covered. And if you look at, read your horoscope every day in the newspaper, it'll come up with a whole plausible scenario of things, and it's written so vaguely that you can pretty much say, hey, my horoscope predicted that. That's now climate science. And someone like Kevin Chenbeth is the poster child. Michael Mann is the poster child. These guys are doing more of a grave disservice to science than many of the past people who have been accused of that. And I, and I really feel sad when I see someone like Kevin Trenbeth come out with these statements. He's selling himself out, and he's, he's gonna, his reputation as the years go on, he's going to be known as an activist first and a scientist second. It's amazing, isn't it? Because one of the most influential philosophers of science, Karl Popper, in the 20th century, said that a scientific theory has to be falsifiable in principle. You must be able to show that it's, right. it's false, if it is false in any way. But this seems to be running right against that. Absolutely. There's no way you can falsify the theory. Here's what they've done. They've come out and made a prognostication. Many bad things will happen with global warming. And guess what? Bad things happen all the time. So every single day, every single hour, somewhere on the globe, global warming is being proven, according to them. There's no weather event that you can use to disprove it. And that's why it has become unfalsifiable. That's why it ceased to become a science anymore, the way they're practicing it. So, again, if there's any of your listeners out there who actually are still buying this hook, line, and thinker, do the most cursory examination. Start looking at the data. Start reading 
some of the scientists who have challenged this, including now Norwegian scientists who just came out recently and now said you wouldn't even notice the global warming over the 20th century, over the last 100 plus years, unless we had all this statistical, uh, he, he didn't use the word uh, you know, nonsense, but something along the line, unless you had all these statistical analysis to, to notice it, humans wouldn't even have noticed it. They're manufacturing a crisis. They're manufacturing an alarm. They've manufactured a consensus. And this is the best science that money can buy. It's the most well-funded, you know, unlike the deforestation, unlike species scares, unlike the ice age scare, unlike the overpopulation scare, they never had the financing that global warming has available to it today. And that is, that is what's powerful. Yeah, what do you think is the, the hope for real science in this area for the future? If trillions of dollars are now on the table to be spent, with something like $700 billion a year up till 2030, what hope is there for real science in this? Well, I don't know. I mean, you have to, first of all, what usually happens to these environmental scares, and I, used, I did a documentary on the Amazon rainforest. I was down in Brazil several times and interviewed the scientists, and that was in year 2000. That was 13 years ago. And that was basically, we called it clear-cutting the myth, and the idea that the Amazon and all these tropical rainforests were disappearing. We went through empirically and showed the idea that football fields per minute were disappearing was nonsense. They weren't counting regeneration. And then nine years later, the New York Times comes around and says, for every acre of rainforest cut, 50 are being regenerated. They quoted a scientist saying that maybe it wasn't such an urgent cause after all. So I guess what's going to happen here is global warming, no one's going to come out and say, oops, we were wrong and move on. They never did that in the 1970s after the global cooling scare. And they've rewritten history now to say that never happened. You'll talk to any global warming activist and they'll say, oh, that was overblown. There was one or two articles in the 70s. That never happened. There's a really real chance that in 20 or 30 years, they're going to look back at this time and say, well, we never really promoted global warming that much. It was actually X, Y, or Z. And I actually have a whole list at Climate Depot of the potential next eco scares that they can do. I don't expect global warming to ever be admission of failure or wrong. I just think they're going to move on. Steven Snyder, the late Steven Snyder, was a big proponent of man-made ice age scare in the 1970s. He moved on. He became a big proponent of the man-made global warming scare by the 1990s. It only took him you know, less than 15 years to turn around completely. So I don't expect any kind of admission, but I do expect a new eco-scare. But I think mm. global warming may have another 10-year run. There's, there's, been a, there's been a move towards the acidification of the oceans, hasn't there, in recent years? They've talked about that, despite the fact that corals have evolved it, 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 with CO2 levels many times higher than they're even contemplating. There's a whole school, and I have a whole, actually a whole reports and studies on ocean acidification. If anyone's interested, they go to Climate Depot. Enter ocean acidification in my search term before you buy that. One of the things they were worried about was sustainable development. We actually had last year the Regenda Pachari of the, of the IPCC climate panel of the UN come out and say that climate was but a symptom of a larger problem, sustainable development, species extinction. The UN announced that it was a greater problem. They formed a panel. The problem is they went down to Rio and they were going to actually try not to get rid of global warming, but they were going to try to have global warming be absorbed into a larger school of issues, including species extinction and sustainable development. So they were going to still use global warming, but it wasn't going to be the lead. But the, the Rio conference that the UN organized last June, its Earth Summit, was such a disaster in terms of attendance, in terms of the agreement, in terms of media interest, that they ended up punning. And you don't hear much about species anymore. They tried and essentially failed which is why I say global warming still has some life left in it. And the fact that in the U.S. that we had Hurricane Sandy, it's got all our politicians, global warming activists, all excited. It's got President Obama talking about it. The fact that President Obama was reelected in the U.S. keeps the issue alive for another four years here as well. 
I wonder if I could ask you, you have already mentioned something about Climate Gate, but I would like to ask you a bit about Climate Gate 3, as it's so-called with the story which broke about a month ago, when whoever it was who originally leaked the documents and emails from the Climatic Research Unit here uh, in the University of East Anglia in the UK, last month released the password so that the remainder of that information could be decrypted. So could you give us uh, an idea of what information researchers have found so far? Yeah, well, the basic thing is there's a ClimateGate 1, which came out in November 2009. ClimateGate 2 was the following year, which you know, around that same time, December or so, 2010. And now we've had a gap, and now ClimateGate 3 has come out. I've already explained that ClimateGate 1 showed the whole narrative of the upper echelon of the global warming scientists colluding and threatening journal editors and keeping scientists from being published and talking about how to craft a narrative. And that was the biggest thing. I mean, I think we'll realize this is like a campaigner. This is like a political campaign where you try to stay on message. That's what these scientists were doing. You expect that from Greenpeace. You shouldn't expect that from disinterested scientists. So what's happened is with ClimateGate 3, you know, at each successive release of the ClimateGate emails, it's become less sensational because I think the most sensational stuff was in ClimateGate 1 and ClimateGate 2 had some powerful stuff. But ClimateGate 3 has been a lot more background information, filling in the blanks and giving skeptics a lot of information just about you know, them, the, the scientists pondering the fact there's been no warming since 1998. And this all ended, of course, the ClimateGate emails ended in uh, 2009. So we don't have anything past, I think, October or maybe early November 2009. But it's fascinating. Again, they're all talking about how they craft the narrative. Uh, And we're also finding out that people like New York Times reporter and climate reporter Andrew Repkin, a lot of the emails of them going back and forth and his connection to these scientists and how they relied on him and then how he would do a bad article and they would write, you know, the New York Times reporter isn't reliable anymore. He's become a problem. And they talk about it as though they're, again, it's running a campaign for prime minister or president and how they, you know, how they deal with the media and they start excluding media that doesn't support them and they support media that does support them. It is just amazing. And the ClimateGate 3 emails are so vast, and we're still going through them. It's the largest release that it's just it's filling in all the blanks, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's of a lot of the media collusion with the activist scientists at the top of the UN. Mm. And you know, if you go to my website and enter ClimateGate 3.0, you can read a lot of the coverage on that. One of the gems that we found out was Phil Jones of your climatic research unit saying, in November 2009, saying, no doubt the world is warming, and then later, shortly after that, reverses himself and starts pondering why there's no temperature increase. And it's amazing because they actually, in these climate emails, will admit, people like Kevin Trenbeth will say the science is settled, but then they'll talk about how geoengineering, trying to alter the climate through human inter- intervention, you know, like trying to lower CO2 different ways or put up things to block the sun, would never work because we don't understand the climate system is so complex we wouldn't understand what impact it has. That, to me, is one of the central things. That was admitted by Kevin Trenbeth in these climate gate emails in 2009 that if you don't understand, if geoengineering you, can, you don't recommend because you don't understand how it would impact the climate, why are we supposed to accept your public pronouncements? This was done privately. Why are we supposed to accept your public pronouncements that a carbon tax, that climate bills, that somehow renewable energy, that lowering CO2 to 350, as these activists talk about, is going to have any noticeable impact on the climate? And it's amazing to see how honest they were in behind-the-scenes emails. Mm. Has the uh, mainstream media at all over there in the U.S. picked up on this ClimateGate 3 story? It hasn't gotten much coverage. In fact, again, the problem with ClimateGate 3, as opposed to the other, I think the the sexiest stuff was done 
in Climate Gate 1 and 2. And this also mm-hmm. has the largest release. It is just massive. And it's going to require someone to go through. And these are, require a lot of context and understanding, a lot of more arcane scientific issues. So it's gotten very little coverage. It got a splash of coverage. And what's interesting is the person who initially released these emails is still unknown. And, and that I find fascinating. There's an, I believe there's an oh, still open police investigation at the Climate Research Unit of East Anglia uh, University trying to look into this, but they've never been able to find the person who did it. So we don't actually know whether this is uh, somebody from the inside or a hacker from the outside. No, it's likely someone, you'd think it's someone from the inside or someone who knows someone on the inside, because what this was, it looks appears to be these were emails that were put together for potential Freedom of Information Act released by the University of East Anglia. And then the judge ruled against it, so they didn't have to release it. But I think whoever may have worked there or had close ties thought that was not right, so they released them anyway. But it looks as though – I don't think this was any – it was not a hacker going through individual computers grabbing emails. This was a university having put all of these emails together for potential Freedom of Information Act requests and then not releasing them, but then they get released anyway. And that's how it happened. And that's how they were able to come out on you know, big loads like that. It would have taken one person very long to try to hack into all these different computers and pull excerpts. Instead, this was done university-wide as a preparation for potential Freedom of Information Act. And it's, so that's why we don't call it a hacker. It was, it was a you know someone there who released this, and, and and they're looking into whether this broke the law. But this is one of the greatest, you know, probably one of our our scientific heroes. When this person comes forward, they may have, they may have to face whatever applicable criminal laws they may or may not have violated. But after that, I say we give them a ticker tape parade because they saved the world. They saved a large percentage of the world from ever believing the United Nations had any credibility on this issue. And for that, we will be eternally grateful. And the fact that Regenda Pachari, who is um, you know, an economist, an engineer who's heading the IPCC, the fact that he is still there is the greatest gift global warming skeptics could ever ask for, <laughs> because the organization, the UN IPCC, can have very little credibility uh, with him still at the helm. And what impact do you say the ClimateGate original revelations had on the U.S. public? Did it change the game? Yeah, it was a game changer, absolutely. Not that it needed huge change. I don't think cap-and-trade would have passed in the U.S. regardless, but it just helped derail the entire U.N. process. It helped fuel the rise in public skepticism even higher. Now, interestingly, in recent times, Gallup polling is showing a rise in belief in man-made climate fairs again. And that makes sense because global warming has dropped off all of our news, even when I go on television now, it's frequently to talk about alternative energy and politics, not climate science, because no one's really talking about it because there's no bill, there's no uh, emphasis on it. So the public is starting to believe again because they watch the, the media, they hear about a storm, and, they, and so you, you, we're getting that rise. I don't think it's rising to pre-climate levels, but it's on the rise. Yeah, it's one thing I've noticed over here. There's very little talk about the science, but there's always this sort of assumption always in the media that you know, it's happening. Global warming is just trotted out as a phrase all the time. As, and, and people, I think, just accept, oh, well, it must therefore just be a, a fact of life. But there's very little going into the detail of the science about it at all or any debate about it. No, there's not. And they won't allow it. And that, that's the funny thing. They, they will not allow a scientific debate on this. They're always told it's over. Back in 1992, Al Gore pressured ABC News Nightline, Ted Koppel, our anchor at the time, not to include a skeptical scientist because he said all scientists agree that there was unanimous consent. In 1992, 21 years ago, they were peddling the idea that the science was settled and there was no debate. My question is, when did we have the debate? When did the science get settled? 
And you know, why do they keep claiming that when there never was a debate? They came out initially, and, and this was fascinating, the 1996 UN report, the first assessment. It's a guy named Ben Santer, who they came out with a very skeptical, unclear pronouncement, the UN summary. And he retroactively went back, one UN scientist went back and changed it, the language, to make, make it sound as though there was a discernible human impact. It was actually the second assessment report in 1996, I believe. And they changed the language without even consulting with anyone. And this is how they came out. It was a political thing done by one man after the report had been issued. People, again, if you just start scratching the surface of this, I think not only will you not believe, you'll be angry. You'll be angry mostly at the media and at any school teachers that have tried to indoctrinate your kids that, there's a, that this is a settled issue or that the science is settled. Yeah, but the thing is, Mark, you see, when you do that, you're called a denier. And there's a tremendous power in that. That's right. And you're compared to Holocaust deniers. And they've also come out with studies saying that, you know, we need to shrink people. I mean, this is, you know, this is really scary stuff. We've, been, we've had calls for trials for skeptics, a la Nuremberg-like trials for global warming skeptics by Grist Magazine, a major environmental publication in the U.S. They don't pull their punches. We're called crimes against humanity, the oil companies and energy companies by NASA's James Hansen, conjuring up Holocaust and Nazi imagery. They have tried everything, but ultimately that kind of rhetoric fails them. The kind of rhetoric where they say we're all doomed fails them. The UK Guardian in an article this week, I made it my headline about millions may starve. It's all this nonsense of speculative what could, might, may happen, not based on the geologic record, not based on the past history of, of agriculture or storms. And it's insulting to our intelligence. It's insulting to science. And at some point, we need stronger and stronger political leaders to stand up and more people in the media to really start challenging this. Any of your listeners, go to climatedepot.com, contact me. You can take a look at my report, A Thousand Dissenting Scientists. It is just unbelievable. And then they claim that skeptics are well-funded. And this is the insult. And the UK Guardian's uh, Susan Goldenberg just did it embarrass herself with a silly article uh, about hundreds of, uh, more than 100 groups getting this money. It came out to, I think, less than a million dollars a group, some paltry sum. Uh, allegedly getting money from industry. We've had ExxonMobil be accused of giving 16 to 19 million to groups skeptical of global warming over more than a decade. Well, one United States farm grant, agricultural grant, of $20 million to study how farm odors contribute to global warming exceeded all the money that the largest oil company was ever accused of giving to global warming skeptics by a Tarsus critic, the Union of Concerned Scientists. So the idea that we have, the skeptics have money, it's a David versus Goliath, but the skeptics are clearly the David. And the Goliath is the monster, global warming, environmental, big green machine that is promoting this. And when you think of all the weapons they have, they've got elected office, they have senators, they have a massive news media, they have universities, they have foundations, they have the United Nations, they have the science body. Most of these science bodies have been overrun by politics. Former staffers of Al Gore are now in charge and at the major you know, American Meteorological Society and these different scientific societies. They politicize them all heavily. So, of course, the leadership of these groups will recognize the politically correct, funded science of our day. And it's not to say, this is an important example. People will say, well, are you saying these scientists are lying? No. If you're a butterfly scientist at a small university in the United States and you've been doing studies on butterflies and your university's not paying attention, the media's not paying attention, you're having trouble getting grants, 
suddenly you get the idea, why don't I do a global warming study of, you know, a modeling study of what could, might, may happen to butterflies in the western United States by the year 2075 if, a big if, temperatures would arise 5 degrees Celsius. So you do a, a legitimate scientific study, speculative, model-based, and suddenly you come up with three scenarios. Butterflies will be minimally impacted. Butterflies will be moderately impacted. Butterflies will be massively impacted. And you do a study. You've not lied. You've done all the scientific ethics. You've followed the scientific method. You publish your paper. Suddenly your university's interested. They pick the most extreme scenario for the media. Butterflies are doomed by global warming, says new study. Suddenly the media's all over it. Suddenly your university's really happy with you. Suddenly you're getting more funding. Suddenly the head of the UN is now coming out saying there's a new study in the U.S. saying that butterflies are doomed. This is another example of global warming. We must act now. Then people are looking at it saying we've done a survey of the peer-reviewed literature. Yet another scientist supports the consensus. We have a butterfly scientist who's now part of the thousands. Of... Meanwhile, this butterfly scientist hasn't studied whether CO2 impacts temperature, hasn't looked at the geologic past to find out if temperatures would even go up because of CO2. All he's done is a speculative model study, but he's now a new rock star of the movement. He's probably at local elementary schools talking about how butterflies might be doomed. And even though he puts in all the scientific caveats, he's not a liar. He didn't do anything unethical, but he's part of the climate con in a large sense because he took the funding and he went along with the narrative. And this is how it happens. It's not because scientists are lying. It's because they're going along with the science of their day, the politicized science of their day. It's not to say that science is all wrong, but when you have science like this, where they put the cart before the horse and they started getting a UN involved and you start talking about tipping points and you have the scientists start talking about uh, endorsing books calling for deindustrializing the U.S. and the scientists calling for carbon taxes and getting arrested for the cause, you realize this isn't science, as most people understand science. Well, you've certainly painted an incredibly vivid picture of it there. And I think if people go to your website, they'll find an awful lot of extra information, which you've already mentioned some of it here. Are there any particular pages that you'd want to draw people's attention to? Well, if you go to climatedepot.com and you go to the right and look, click on special reports, and in that you will find the, the descending scientist report of a thousand skeptics. You will find the extreme weather report. You will find other reports like that. And then we have a search engine. If you're looking up ocean acidification, you want to know about polar bears, enter any term you'd like, and you will find what you need to, the latest scientific data, the latest scientific studies, and the historical relevance to all this. And, and you'll find the, the warmest predictions as well. Because what they've done, they can cover themselves now. There's actually a study years ago claiming the global warming will cause more snow. But there's also many studies saying the global warming will mean less snow. Well, no matter the weather, they can point to the study, what study they need. They've covered themselves on both sides of the aisle. We, we actually have a page at Climate Depot that documents more droughts, less droughts, all the contradictory predictions that they've made. This is where you come up with the, the horoscope or the astrology angle. No matter the weather event, they can actually credibly cite some study in the past that predicted it. Why? Because they pretty much predicted everything and anything at some point. And that's where we are right now. This is what they're calling science. So I remember, I think it was George Mumbia in the UK was so excited that he could find some study that no one had cited in 10 years that said that global warming may mean more blizzards. And of course, they hyped that, despite the fact that UN warned of less snow, the Climate Research Unit warned of less snow, the UN scientist Michael Oppenheimer warned of less snow, that there were multiple studies. They were able to find the one study that predicted, and of course, that's all they wanted to talk about. It's like, kind of like a stopped clock is right twice a day. Well, if you predict everything and anything, <laughs> you're going to have a study to back it up. And that's where the bastardization of science continues unchecked with man-made global warming fears.
And the way that you've arranged this on your website is that people can see this information uh, side by side, can they, so that they can com- compare these things? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm working on making a, a sort of a table of contents, A to Z, that would be easier. But in, in lieu of that, search engine, you can look up any topic and go to the special reports. You'll find, uh, I did, I've done an A to Z report already, which needs to be updated from 2010. But it goes through everything from the Arctic and the Antarctic to polar bears to sea level to cholera, malaria, forestry issues to global average temperature. And you can just go through and it's powerful because you see it all right there. And the job of a skeptic is much harder. A global warming alarmist, all they have to do is make a prediction. A skeptic has to respond to the prediction of the global warming alarmist and then deconstruct it and show where it's wrong. So we have multi-step process. All they have to do is make assertions. They don't really deal that much with rebutting skeptics. And the sites that do, do a really bad job of it. Al Gore has joined in this now trying to rebut skeptics, and, I, and he's got a website and all they do is make an assertion, and if you look at it, many of their things are model-based. Uh, and one, one of the things they've done in order to make claims now that don't make any sense, they'll claim the Antarctic is now less ice, and we find out it's not a really data study, it's a study that uses models to estimate ice that they couldn't measure. And whenever you get into a study that uses any models, that's a major fudge factor, and you can pretty much show whenever you want. So whenever you hear about a study, if it's a model-based study, be it about something you know current or a prediction of the future, it's time for you to be not to be very very skeptical of it. Absolutely, it's amazing how much they seem to rely upon models. Uh, this was something that uh, Dr. Karlstrom was pointing out to me: just how much of the science is actually dependent upon these models, and very very few of these people who are involved with this are actually getting their hands dirty doing any real research. Yeah, in fact, there was a book called Useless Arithmetic, and the guy's name was Oren Pilkey. Now, Oren Pilkey claimed that if you look at like engineering studies on you know if you're building something and looking at nature and trying to project stuff, he said it was basically virtually impossible that you could almost you know, just do a random guess as to how things might react and seawalls and other things. But he ended up getting so much flack that skeptics liked his message. He wasn't even talking about global warming. That He had to announce that he was a believer in global warming. But, but even people who write about other stuff, look up useless arithmetic. It's a fascinating concept, but it could be applied to the global warming debate as well. And I just think it's fascinating how people will accept you know, oh, well, it may not be that bad now, but have you heard it's worse than we thought? Well, how is it worse than we thought? Sea level's not accelerating, polar bears are thriving, global average temperatures stopped. Well, haven't you heard? By 2060, they're predicting X, Y, Z. Well, so wait a minute, that's not worse than we thought. That's just a prediction, of another scary prediction. So in other words, as the real world data fails, predictions of the future get scarier and scarier. It's almost like they're trying to distract us from the real world data. And that's why the word retreat is so important. Even with someone like Jeffrey Lean, he's not reversing himself, but he's retreating, just scratching their head, saying, hey, maybe CO2 isn't all powerful like we thought. And if you, again, if you look through the peer-reviewed literature, you'll find some studies say that the solar activity can account for up to half the temperature. Other studies show that the lack of volcanic dust can account for up to a third of the current temperature. Other studies will show ocean cycles being the predominant. You start adding it all up, and it's like, wait a minute, how much room is left for CO2 to be in there, to be this dominant control knob that Al Gore and that the United Nations sort of claim that it is. And you realize it's not, that CO2 is but a factor, but you can't even distinguish the rising CO2 from natural variability. And that's what we're talking about. Until they can show 
that current weather and temperature is outside the realm of natural variability, this whole thing is a theory. And they know that. And that's why they tried with Michael Mann to have the hockey stick to try to claim it's the hottest in a thousand years. And that's why this guy, Sean Marquette at University of Washington, came out with his revised hockey stick just recently. He's a, only one year out of his PhD thesis, a young scientist. He came out and tried to claim it's the hottest in 4,000 years. He upped Michael Mann's discredited theory by 3,000 years and said we were the hottest in 4,000 years. And now they were forced to retract the central claim by saying their part of the 20th century, which showed the warmth, was not statistically robust. It's a way of saying, oh, never mind, we goofed. And this is now covered. This has even got the attention of the New York Times, this reversal. So that's significant. And now many people, are, observers, are saying this may end up being retracted, in the, or at least a partial retraction in the scientific journal. They have egg all over their face. They know how important. You can't claim man-made climate fairs without showing unprecedented, and they can't show anything unprecedented. They can't show the weather. They can't show extreme storms. And they can't show it in the peer-reviewed literature. They can't show the global temperature unprecedented. They can't show the geologic record as being current temperatures being unprecedented. So what do they do? They come up with very scary predictions of the future. And if you look, what they learn from the overpopulation mistake, Paul Ehrlich in the late 60s was making scary predictions for 5, 10, 12 years away. By 1980, he said England will be a puff of blue smoke or something like that. He lived, he's still alive now, he's in his early 80s, but he lived to be made a fool of, but all his predictions wrong. He lost a huge bet with Julian Simon about precious metals, and he was a, a modern-day Malthusian believing in resource scarcity. Paul Ehrlich was the overpopulation guru. But the global warmers have learned from him. Most of the calamity they predict, if you listen to the person making the prediction, look at the year that the, that the calamity is allegedly going to happen, and then look at the year the person who's making the calamity prediction, was born. And you'll find out they'll be long dead. This is the legacy of Paul Ehrlich. They've realized now if you're going to make scary predictions, make them far enough in the future where you'll be long dead and you won't have to be around and answer it. By the way, go to enter overpopulation at Climate Depot, too. I have the latest on that as well. It is stunning. Even the New York Times has now acknowledged that the, over, the population is probably going to peak out around 9 billion and drop. Slate Magazine, a left-of-center publication here with the latest data, says that the underpopulation could be so great, the, the current projections show there may not be enough people to fill senior citizens' homes in the future if population follows this trajectory. It's still predictions of the future, but the bottom line is the certainty we were facing of doom that people bought into in the 1960s and 70s. All the intelligent people bought into this, all the educated people. The, the, in the, the scientists, the scientific establishments, it was a given that we had overpopulation problems, that we were going to be facing this and resource scarcity. Wrong, wrong, and wrong, they now admit it. But Paul Ehrlich, as of a few years ago, was still winning scientific awards. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It's be, you know, and that's what they say. It's not really about the science. It's the fact that he cared. It's the fact that he tried to issue warning bells. He stood up, to, and you know, and this is what they're doing now with the global warming. It doesn't really matter about the science. They're doing the right thing by policy. Well, perhaps by 2113, we shall find out whether they were right or wrong with their theories, um, if you can wait that long. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Morano, it has been a great pleasure talking to you. I know from listening to the other interviews that you've done over the years that it was going to be very informative and entertaining, and it's certainly been both. So thank you ever so much for sparing this time to talk with us. Thank you, Julian. I enjoyed it. appreciate it.